me in prayer. Uh, the prayer I'm about to pray before the word of God, um, I was reading John Knox the other day and I was really blessed by his prayer, so I did a couple of edits, uh, but this prayer is definitely from Knox and uh, it was a blessing to my soul and I pray it'll be a blessing to all of you as well. Please pray with me. Eternal and everlasting God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by your infinite goodness, you have chosen for yourself a church unto which from the fall of man you have shown yourself, first by your voice to Adam, next to Abraham and his seed, then to all Israel, by the publication of your holy law, and last by sending your only Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, that great angel of your counsel, into this world to teach us your holy will and to put an end to all revelations and prophecies who also elected to himself apostles to whom after his resurrection he gave commandment to publish and preach his gospel to all realms and nations, promising to be with them even to the end of the world, not only so instruct and teach them, but also to ratify and confirm such things as they shall pronounce or decree by the word. Give unto us, O Lord, that presently are assembled here in your name such abundance of thy Holy Spirit, that we may see those things that shall be expedient for the advancement of your glory in the midst of this perverse and stubborn generation. Give us grace, O Lord, that universally among ourselves we may agree in the unity of the word of God, true doctrine, the reformed faith, all to the exaltation of Christ. Preserve us from damnable errors and grant unto us such purity and cleanness of life that we be not scandalous to thy blessed gospel. Bless, O God, our weak labors that the fruits of the same may result to the praise of your holy name, to the profit of this present generation and of the posterity to come through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee, O God, and the Holy Spirit be all honor and praise now and forever. Those that are dead make no mention of God in the earth, and therefore, O Lord, spare thy servants today that yet for a time we may show and witness thy wonderful works unto mankind. What are the things that we ought principally to seek in this transitory life? Not those for which the blind world contends or strives, but God in his loving kindness toward mankind, his amiable promises and true religion to be advanced and preached to others. Bless this day with your covenantal presence, your steadfast love that burdens that the burdens of this world may be thrown off and that the joy we have in and from you, Father, and from the Son and the Holy Spirit will overwhelm us this day. Send us out this day with changed and renewed minds, subdued and sanctified wills, and captivate our hearts after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to uh, be in Psalm 136. 
Uh, but before I get started, I just want to say thank you, extend thanks to inviting us here to share the word of God with you. Uh, my wife, Jasmine, is with me, and my three daughters, uh, Victoria, Chloe, and Scarlett. And uh, some of you I do know, I can see uh, many of you in the pews and got a chance to fellowship with you. And some of you I don't know very personally, but let me say, because we are in Christ, you are our family. And uh, it's just great to be amongst family and to worship together. So uh, we're going to be in Psalm 136, and we're going to do a responsive reading here. So uh, where it says, for his steadfast love endures forever, uh, I'm requesting, Wallace, that you all will say, for his steadfast love endures forever, because that is how Israel would have uh, sung this song. So uh, we're going to read Psalm 136, and here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Ah, king of Bashan. and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh Give thanks to the God of heaven. Thank you. This is the word of God. So when I was invited here to preach the word of God, uh, I could not help but to wonder, what could I say? Wallace, as you know better than I do, has a rich heritage with many great men 
who have preached and pastored from this pulpit. What could I say, especially in the climate that we're in today, with so many challenges that we are facing in our nation and as a church? For the many years that have gone by, it is no secret, right, that Wallace has seen a fair share of battles, victories, and unfortunately, casualties. There have been many joys here, weddings, infant baptisms, reformation celebrations, and there have been sorrows here as well. So looking back at the past, sitting here in the present and looking toward the future, what message do so many of us need to hear and others who need to be reminded need to be reminded of. And as I was thinking and praying, I believe the message that all of us need to hear is that we have a covenant-keeping God. Both in uncertain times and in times of peace, true salvation, stability, and security is found only in a covenant God who endures forever. God must be understood in a covenantal way Otherwise, confidence in the face of adversity, security in the present time, and assurance of the future may be non-existent. So what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement imposed from a superior to a subordinate with obligations to one another that must be fulfilled. There is no gospel without covenant, and there is no lasting covenant without the gospel. The two are inseparably joined, and they make the covenant of grace, which reflects the covenant-keeping God upon which all things rest. J.I. Packer said this, he says, the gospel of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. So it is here in Psalm 136 where the covenant keeping God is put on display. The refrain is, his steadfast love endures forever. And this is the main chorus of this psalm and all of the content that we're going to explore today complements this one magnanimous covenantal statement about the covenant-keeping God. And this psalm testified to God's covenant fidelity, his trustworthiness to bring to fulfillment all of the obligations of this blessed covenant of grace. So the Psalms are composed of five books, each inspired by God through redemptive historical events that the writers lived through and wrote their praises and laments to God. Books one to three, that's Psalms one to 89, were in the pre-exilic era of Israel where David is king. The people are within and around the temple and the tabernacle but book three ends with Psalm 89 and lament. Something happened. 
And it reads in Psalm 89, verse 46 and verse 49, the kingdom, I'm sorry, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? So what happened? The kingdom is lost. The people are going into exile. And the monarchy was lost and no more. Book four appears to be the writings of Israel while in exile to remind them of the goodness of God and their beginnings with God to bring them to repentance. Psalm 90 is the song of Moses and it was to remind Israel of God's goodness while they were in exile. Listen to this. It says in Psalm 90, verses 11 to 14, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Are any of you crying how long? I know I am. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And then we come to book five, which is the post-exilic inspired writings, where Psalm 136 is located and the psalmist sings the praises of God as he reflects on the faithfulness of God even in their darkest moments. This psalm was written in the midst of the people being brought back from exile. And the psalmist gives God the praise as he stands on the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He has always been faithful. He is a covenant-keeping God, and upon him we trust, rest, and upon him we stand. So here the congregation of Israel is given the blessed truth about a covenant-keeping God, and their response is his steadfast love endures forever. This is a psalm of praise, a psalm of rejoicing, a psalm for all of us to remember and to know the triune God that we serve and love. This psalm must not only be sung in times of triumph, but remembered in the days of adversity so that we may have a renewed confidence in our great In this psalm, the psalmist paints a masterpiece that puts God on display in his covenantal character, his covenantal power, his covenantal kingship, his covenantal worship, and his covenantal Christ. So our first point for this morning is God's covenantal character. And it comes from verses 1 to 3, and it reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love 
endures forever. The psalmist starts Israel's praise of God for the highest thing there is in the universe, God himself. There is, this is, this is where all of life and worship finds its source, and it is where it will all end. With God. Here the psalmist, the psalmist places all eyes on the person of God. Knowing God for the psalmist, he's conveying to Israel, he's saying knowing God is the highest priority for all his creatures. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent J.I. Packer says the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it, a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. What is the heart of the problem for the whole world is that they don't know God. Packer goes on to say, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So the psalmist tells the congregation to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Then he says to give thanks to the Lord is not an option. It is a command of God's people. And it's not a slavish obligation, no. Their thanks is caused, our thanks is caused by the goodness of God. Second, the text says, give thanks to the God of gods. There is only one true God and everything else is unworthy of praise and worship. It was idolatry, don't we remember, that led to Israel's exile. And the psalmist reminds them that he is the only true God and there is no other. Finally, Israel should give thanks for he is the Lord of Lords. And the word here for Lord is not the covenantal name. It is not the I am. It is not Yahweh. And that's surprising since the whole refrain throughout the whole psalm is covenantal. But the title here for Lord is Master, Lord, Ruler. This attribute is pointing to God's control over all things. God is good. God is God. And he sovereignly controls all things according to the purpose of his will. And the psalmist calls for the praise of God by reminding Israel that he is the Lord. All that has been gained and lost, that has been or will be, is at the hand of the, so as at the sovereign hand of God, for all things are under his control. God cannot be faithful if one molecule in the universe is not under his sovereign control. 
So the psalmist says that we are to interpret the world through the truth of God. We are to see the world as under the control of God and experience all things in the world with a view towards the goodness of God. Everything else this psalm aims at is to answer the question, why is God good? Why is God the God of gods? Why is he the Lord of lords? That leads us to our second point, God's covenantal power. And we're going to be focusing on verses 4 to 16, and it reads, To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. I really do want his steadfast love to endure forever, to stick in your minds when you leave here. It's a beautiful refrain. But in this text... In this section of the psalm, one cannot be a covenant keeper if they lack the power to fulfill their promises. God is a covenant-keeping God because he not only creates and enters into a covenant, he is the one that fulfills it. And here the psalmist puts the power of God on display in creation, for it is creation that testifies that he is the God of gods. It is the creation that testifies that God has the power to fulfill his covenant promises. When God made his covenant with Abraham, that he would have a child to assure Abraham and to relieve Abraham's doubt, God took him outside and said this to him. He says, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. Why did God do that? Well, we can see in Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The result of seeing creation through God's word revealed God's covenantal power which resulted in Abraham's justification by faith alone. Abraham saw God as the covenant-keeping God of gods. Who else can set the stars in the, heaven like, in the heavens like this? 
And we see in Genesis 15, verse 6, right after that, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If God is able to set the stars in the sky and none of them fall, none of them lose its light, surely God can make Abraham's barren wife have a child to fulfill his covenant promises. However, it is not just God's power in creation that calls for his praise as the God of gods. It is the uncreation. The devastating destruction of the fallen order points to him as a covenant-keeping God. Yes, the stars are set in the heavens, but one day they will fall. But that does not change the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. It testifies that he is. If creation is a display of his power to fulfill his covenant obligations, the uncreation is a display of his power to bring retribution on covenant breakers. After God pointed Abraham to the stars, telling him that he will fulfill his covenant promises to produce a people from Abraham's loins, God also said this in Genesis 15, verse 13 to 14. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation and that, they, that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. And this was God giving Abraham an end-time preview of the Abrahamic covenant. The Exodus is not only a shadow of the great deliverance from the bondage of sin, but the uncreation of the world. Those plagues in Egypt are a shadow of our Lord's second coming. In God's power of creation, he brought light. In his judgment upon Egypt, he pronounced darkness. In creation, he set the waters and divided it from the land. In his judgment upon Egypt, he divided the waters and brought them on top of Pharaoh and his soldiers. In creation, he gave life to the firstborn son, Adam. In his judgment upon Egypt, he took the life of the firstborn children. And why did God do this? Well, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, and God heard their groaning and listened, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The gospel, beloved, is composed of God's reconciling his people to himself through Christ. But the gospel is also retribution for all who reject him. And if you take either one of these away, you do not have the gospel. God's reconciliation in Christ and retribution outside of Christ makes up the glorious gospel that we love and profess. So the psalmist says that God is a covenant-keeping God, and we know this from his power in creation and in his power in uncreation. The psalmist says we know he is a covenant-keeping God 
through his acts of judgment and eternal salvation. And that brings us to our next point, God's covenantal kingship. And we're going to read verses 17 to 22, and it reads, To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for a steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. And here the psalmist directs the covenant community to give thanks to the Lord of lords. And remember, I said that the word here is not the covenantal name. It's not the I am. It is, from, it is master or ruler. In this section of the psalm, it tells us why we should give thanks that he is the Lord of Lord and how this shows God to be a covenant-keeping God. The psalmist is pointing to God's lordship over all things. In this portion of the psalm, God struck down great kings, killed mighty kings, gave Israel their land as a heritage, and Israel is his servant, which all points to the sovereign lordship of God. You see, if God had the power to fulfill the covenant, but no control over creation, then he couldn't be a covenant-keeping God because creation at some point could thwart his plan. They could outsmart him. Some, that, that, it's not out of his, that everything is out of his control. And that would make God lower than and subjected to his creation rather than reigning over it. So what good would his power be if he controls nothing? And if that's the case, then he ceases to be God. And something or someone else is. Israel is called to remember God's dealing with the pagan kings that the whole world is under his sovereign reign, the sovereign reign of the Lord of Lords. God, remember God sent Moses with a message to say to Pharaoh, and here is that message. Exodus chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. For by now... God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you. God was under no obligation to do the plagues. He could have just taken Pharaoh out. And your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But listen, God says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In Jeremiah 27 verses 6 through 7, it reads, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right. There you have, just in that verse, 
God as the God of gods and God as the Lord of lords. But he goes on to say, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. Then you have in Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners and who turns wise men back and make their knowledge foolish. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And here is what one of the pagan kings had to say about the covenant-keeping God being Lord of lords. This is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none... Can say to hit, can say, can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The psalmist here is reminding Israel of his lordship that all that they went through was not circumstantial, it wasn't by fate. All of their success, failures, and trials were under the control of God's mighty hand. And to forget or to deny this is eternally detrimental, beloved. It is a breaking of the covenant. God, Herman Bobbing says this, God is the creator, therefore the owner, possessor and Lord of all things. Apart from him, there is no existence or ownership. He alone has absolute authority. Always and everywhere, his will decides. That will is the final ground of all things, of their being and of their being as they are. Beloved, God has chosen his characters, he has turned on the lights, he has set his cosmic stage, and everybody is playing their part according to his script. Everyone serves God's lordship, either as his covenant people or his covenant enemy. One obeys to his glory and the other rebels to his glory. 
Both are being used to bring about his eternal purpose and both will be rewarded fully for their actions. And that takes us to our fourth point, God, God's covenantal worship. By this point, maybe some of you are saying, man, you're making God sound like some tyrannical ruler. He's all powerful, the God of gods. He's in control of all things because he's the Lord of lords. And that puts creation at his mercy. And rightfully so. Yet, the psalmist makes the final call to worship. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. The section we want to focus on in this text is 23 to 26. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist leaves no room for doubt among the covenant people that God is good. God remembered Israel in their lowest state and rescued them. It is a command to worship God as God, as Lord, and as good. But as mentioned above, Israel is commanded to give thanks to the Lord, not from an empty slavish obligation, but because the goodness of the Lord causes them to praise God. There was a time that Israel doubted the goodness of God in the wilderness before they entered the land. When the spies brought the report back about the land, Israel's response was unbelief in God's goodness. And that unbelief attacked God's character. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, the whole congregation said to them, would that, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Oh, would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into, into this land to, to all fall by the sword, our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader so that we can go back to Egypt. And to question God's goodness doesn't only attack the character of God, but it scorns the presence of God. In God's response in Numbers 14, verses 28 to 29, God's response is, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. When the goodness of God is challenged, it is a sign of unbelief and hates the presence of God. But God doesn't respond by removing his presence, for he's everywhere. Rather, his presence ceases to be a covenantal blessing and becomes a covenantal curse. 
So the psalmist reminds Israel that God is good in three ways. First, God remembered Israel in their low estate and when they were when they were in exile under bondage as a result of their sin and low estate is an old testament term for humiliation through exile and bondage god in his goodness remembered israel in their dominated state the second reason god is good the psalmist says god rescued us from our enemies this word also can mean to be redeemed. So God bought them back from the slave market and separated them from their enemies. Finally, God is good because he provided food for them. He took care of them and provided for them after he delivered them. So the psalmist tells Israel to remember that God is good and all things that he has done is good. Therefore, his presence should be a covenant blessing, not a covenant curse. When God's people know that he is good, it fuels their praise and worship. I don't know if anyone may be struggling some Sundays to praise the Lord and to sing your hymns, maybe even to come to church. Perhaps part of the problem is you have forgotten how good God is. Jonathan Edwards says this, true gratitude or thankfulness to God for his kindness to us arises from a foundation laid before of love to God for what he is in himself. Whereas a natural gratitude has no such antecedent foundation. In other words, there are people who are thankful, but their thankfulness is temporary because their thankfulness is rested on temporary things. But when your gratefulness and thankfulness is based and rested on the, etern the eternal goodness of God, that fuels your worship. Edwards goes on to say, the gracious stirrings of grateful affection to God for kindness received always are from a stock of love already in the heart, established in the first place on the grounds of God's own excellency. And hence, the affections are disposed to flow out on occasions of God's kindness. Has God been kind to you this week, today? How long has he been kind to you? And that is why he is going to lead us to an eternal worship of him. Because his kindness to us knows no bounds. Finally, the psalmist brings to bear on the mind of God's people. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Now this place is God above them and not below. In other words, he is good because he is not of this fallen world. To be beneath is to be earthly, sensual, corruptible. Even more so in the spirit world for Israel. For Israel, uh, the spirit world was below or beneath and it was dreaded or seen as evil. Psalm 9 verse 17 reads, the wicked shall return to Sheol 
all the nations that forget God. Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, meaning the grave below, with no place to dwell. God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. These passages testify that to be beneath is the abode of the wicked, those who have rebelled against God. Heaven is the height of goodness because it is far from Sheol and the opposite of it. And heaven is heaven because God is there. The psalmist directs the people of God to keep their eyes fixed on God in heaven. For he is the ultimate goodness. I know you've experienced wickedness here, but fix your eyes where goodness dwells. The psalmist is saying that they must fix their affections on the things above and not on the earth. When troubles arise, looking up, was to encourage and strengthen their faith. Israel, as they met, used to make travel to the earthly Jerusalem, sung songs of ascent that had a mixture of hope for the heavenly Jerusalem. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Knowing God is the God of heaven is another evidence of his goodness towards his people. All of the false gods of the nations are from below. Earthly, sensual, temporary, and wicked. They abuse their worshipers, but God is from above and he takes care of his people. So Psalm 136 is a call to worship the covenant-keeping God. The psalmist walks Israel through redemptive history to show that the God of Israel is the only true God. He is the Lord of lords, and he is good. The psalmist directs the people to know their covenant-keeping God and to never forget him again. Edwards again says, men will trust in God no further than they know him. And they cannot be in the exercise of faith in him one ace further than they have a sight of his fullness and faithfulness in exercise. And that leads us to our fifth and final point this morning. God's covenantal Christ. So how do we know this covenant-keeping God? Well, the best way to know the covenant-keeping God is through his covenantal Christ. The apostle John wrote to the Jews, Christian and non-Christian, after the destruction of the temple and the siege of Jerusalem after 70 AD to help them to know the covenant-keeping God. 
And many would have lost hope after this tragic event, for it is the temple that was the center of life for Israel and perhaps even for the Christians in that day. Its destruction signified that all was lost. And for Israel as a nation, that was a correct response. Pick a landmark that you have grown up with. Maybe it's the capital, maybe it's here at Wallace, and imagine it's just devastated, burning on fire. And that anguish that you might feel times it by a hundred, that's how the recipients of the Gospel of John's letter were feeling. Because the destruction of the temple says that God has turned his back on them. And that he has not kept his covenantal promises. The destruction of the temple for them said, God is not a covenant-keeping God. And we've had that in our lives, haven't we? Something special to us that we lost makes us question God. Jesus But to encourage God's people, John writes to remind them of the covenant-keeping God that is seen best through his son, Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The apostle John writes to encourage worship of the true and living God. The worship of the God of God's the worship of the Lord of Lords, and to remember that he is good. Jesus Christ is the true and living God. John begins his gospel with this divine truth about Jesus Christ, that he is God, the God of gods, and it is this God who is to be praised for his power in creation. We, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it reads, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made. Hebrews 1 verse 3 reads, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When Christ was in the manger, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. When Christ was being crucified, he was upholding the world and those who were nailing the nails through his hand. He was upholding them by his power. And that's what makes sin so heinous. We take God's power and spit it back in his face. But not only that, John continues, he says, Christ is the Lord of Lords. Not only does he has the power to create and keep covenant, he has the authority to control, to direct all of creation to fulfill his covenant. John points us to Christ's authority in him arranging all things to come to die for the glory of the Father. When Jesus Christ was before Pontius Pilate, Christ informed Pilate that the only reason 
he was standing before him as a prisoner is because it was his will. It was God's will, and that, that is why he was there. Pilate suggested that he had authority over him, and Jesus replied to him that his authority is derivative, not absolute. John 19, verses 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. All the leaders of the nations, whether wicked or just, are God's servants, and they're going to receive their just reward. The creature rebelling against the creator is like an ant picking a fight with the sun. Jesus was not a victim, beloved. Everything was and is totally under his control. He, in front of Pontius Pilate, about to be crucified, he is fulfilling the covenant he made through the shedding of his blood. He is the author of his covenant, and the creatures are just a pen. John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And beloved, because we have union with Christ, the battles that we face, it's not happenstance. God has all things under his control. Jesus Christ is Lord, and to reject or to rebel against his lordship is to break covenant with him. John Frame says this, we must choose whether to recognize God as Lord or not. Those who do not recognize him as Lord exchange the truth for a lie, and they lose the basis for finding truth. So we're not talking here about mere differences of opinion, but about spiritual warfare. It is these two opposite worldviews that contend for the hearts of all people today. So Christ is the Lord of Lords, and then Christ is good. He came to rescue his sheep by laying down his life. When we were at our low estate, dominated by sin and death. There are a lot of bad things that happen out there, right? I've had people say, how in the world can you tell me God is good? Do you know what's happening out there? Have you not seen the news? How can you say that God is good? Give me evidence that he's good. And my response is, Christ was crucified and the tomb is empty. And that will never change. John chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So God brought the greatest triumph out of history's greatest unjust tragedy. The exaltation of the risen Christ and the salvation of his people. What a triumph. And beloved, if he's done that, there's nothing that you face today that is not redeemable, redeemable in Jesus Christ. Because he's good. God is a covenant-keeping God for it because he's good. And not only did Christ redeem us from sin and death in our lowest state, but he provided us with food for his people that not, on, that not only satisfy the body, but sustains the soul. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And like the psalmist, Christ comes to make the final call to worship, to give thanks to the God of gods, to give thanks to the Lord of lords, and to give thanks for he is good. God is the covenant-keeping God whose steadfast love endures forever. In John, 4, chapter, John chapter 4, verse 23 to 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And where are we all going with this? Well, it's worship, beloved. Worship is the purpose for the existence of creation. And eternal worship of the covenant-keeping God is where we are hidden. So why should I leave here worshiping and rejoicing in this covenant-keeping God? Well, we just told you why. But we are to worship God because he is God. If nothing else in the Bible was written except in the beginning God, that is enough to call for us to worship him. But secondly, let me leave you with this thought from G.K. Bill of why you need to see God and worship him as the God of gods, as the Lord of lords, and that he is good, our covenant-keeping God. He says this, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you being a covenant-keeping God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for being faithful when we are not faithful. And Father, um, we pray for all of our churches, we pray for the church in, uh, in the PCA. We pray for all, all of our denominations and, and churches here in America that you would help them to realize that you are a covenant-keeping God. We pray for our nation, that they will recognize that you are a covenant-keeping God. And Father, I pray that you will send us out this week with confidence and boldness, knowing that you are good, that all things are under your control. And if we ever question whether or not you are God, that we can look in our word first and read about you and see you in Christ. 
And as we go to our jobs and our homes, we can look up and see the stars set in the sky, set in the sky to remind us that you are a covenant-keeping God. Thank you for Wallace. Continue to bless them above whatever they may ask or think. And uh, thank you for your, their testimony here of, the, of you, Father, the covenant-keeping God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.